You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Interstate Batteries is a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation, and these guys have been around a very long time. And why do you stick around a long time? It's because you treat your customers the right way, and you provide your customers with a product that works. So if you want to find out more information about Interstate Batteries, their history, their company culture, their devotion to the customer, what you need to do is visit interstatebatteries.com or stop into one of their thousands of retail locations all over the United States and talk with a battery specialist today. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. On today's episode, I have a guest that you should be familiar with, Ted Bright. Now, Ted and I did a podcast about his deer season last fall where he knocked down a couple really nice bucks. And I'll tell you what, he had a banner season this year for turkey hunting as well. Between birds he either killed himself or called in for his son or close friends, he totaled up over half a dozen gobblers this year. It was a significant jump from previous years, so a lot of what we talked about was exactly what he did this year, how it was different from years past. We talk about several of those hunts in detail, and the general style that he has is basically the quintessential run-and-gun style of hill country hunting. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. I certainly did. Also, a couple quick notes. I've partnered up with Onyx. As many of you know, Onyx has been my go-to app for several years now for not only planning out-of-state hunts through scouring public and private land layers, but also mapping and dissecting local hunting areas, color coding, taking photo notes, and using as an in-the-field tool. If you guys use the code DIY, you'll get a discount code on an Onyx membership. And as previously noted, use the code DIY10 for 10% off either FOBs on their website or microdiameter arrows with ethics components from Vector Custom Shop. And with that, let's dive into the episode. But you've been a part of, what, six different turkey kills this spring? Yes. And you're not even like a you know full-time turkey hunter like, like some of the other guys out there. So that's, with the limited amount of time that you put in the woods, you've been super efficient, it sounds like, in terms of getting on birds. It's been incredibly efficient. I, I feel like... You know, I, I mean, I've only turkey hunted for basically nine years. I kind of, I counted it back, but the first few years, you know, it was just, you know, I would go and, uh, I don't know, it was just a half-hearted effort, you know, but the last few years I've really gotten into it. And then this year, I just felt like it all came together. You know, I've got a systematic approach to locating and setting up and that's the key in my opinion. So was that something that's different than what you've done in the past, or do you did you basically do the same thing this year that you've done in the past, just minor minor tweaks to it, and you're starting to see the results? No, I it's definitely different, definitely different than in the past. Um, 
in the past, I would just almost wander without a plan or I would have a plan, but it wasn't really a great plan. You know what I mean? It would include, you know, uh, fields, midlands, ridges, everything. Now I pretty much exclusively will just walk ridgelines and, you know, um, uh, call in specific spots on fingers off of that main ridge and, and then set up accordingly. And now I've got my system down to, I've got what, what I need to kill a turkey, uh, maybe, uh, you know, just a, a few snacks or something like that. And I'm not carrying a decoy. I don't carry a plethora of calls. And I got a mouth call and a backup mouth call and a shotgun and binos and hydration. And that's about it. Yeah, that's, that's definitely an efficient way to go throughout the woods and you're putting on that many miles. Half the time, I feel like if you bring all that extra stuff, you start bogging yourself down a little bit more, making yourself less mobile. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. And my opening day in Missouri, Turkey, I, I had a vest on and that was the last day I wore the vest because I had to take it off to sneak up on this Turkey. And I'm like, okay, well, that's pretty telling, right? Uh, so, I haven't worn the vest since then. I've just been using my uh, my Badlands Dash Pack. Describe that pack. Is it like a just a small backpack or hip pack or what? What kind of pack is it? It's it's a it's a backpack. Uh, it's a very light frame backpack. It's not. Um, it's it's got a small aluminum frame to it, and the it's almost got like a, a standoff of material that gives you breathing room in your back, and it's super, super light, and it's um, it's uh, it's it's long. It's built for long torso people, and I, I just love that style of pack. When it's super light, it can breathe, and you can cinch it down to where it moves with your body, both shoulders and waist. Um, that's what I look for in a pack and that's what I use for, you know, for saddle hunting, for deer hunting. And I just incorporated it into turkey hunting and it, it works out great. So you did Tennessee first, right? Yes. Those hills down there. I mean, that's, they're pretty big hills. Would you say they're similar or bigger or smaller than the hills that are at the place we deer hunted last fall? Uh, smaller. Smaller, very similar in style, but kind of, uh, I would say smaller. We got there just in time uh, to. We did some driving around, scouting, and PJ spotted a, a bird. You know, we got out and we kind of went to two separate fields, and PJ spotted one, and we went and we tried to put a stalk on it because we had just enough time to try, but we were conservative in our approach and we put him to bed, and then went in and killed him the next morning almost as soon as he flew down. I just kind of, he didn't fly down the way we thought he would. And I, we did a little bit of walking, walked maybe, I don't know, uh, 60 yards or so and poked around a little bit of a corner. And he was right there on the edge and I blasted him. It was pretty fun. Nice. But it was pretty cool because TJ is the one that spotted him, you know. So that one sounded like a pretty classic, just, you know, roosted is roasted type story what when you set up on him was he on like the point of a ridge or what kind of exact spot was that bird roosted on and then also where did he fly down in relation to whatever uh terrain feature he was on 
So he, uh, it was not on a ridge. From my understanding, birds in that area, and there is some agricultural fields there in that, that second area we went to, the, the birds in that area like to roost in the creek bottom. And he was uh, close to a creek, but more importantly, he was in like a small finger of woods between two fields. It's almost like there's uh, two large fields that came together and two large chunks of woods that came together. But the woods in that particular area, because of the two fields, choked down to where there's just like a small strip. Mm-hmm. And he was roosted right in there. So are you assuming that he was going to fly down to one of those two fields? Yes. Yeah, and we were in the woods just off of the field. And uh, when he flew down, he was literally on the edge of the field. And we kind of waited a little bit to see what he would do and uh, called a few times and nothing. And then we went kind of around and poked our head around. And he was right at the edge of the field in a different spot. And I, I basically saw him before he saw me, and he saw me raising my gun, and I shot him before he could react. Gotcha. So then he pretty much just – he didn't, like, walk out in the middle of the field. He had no hands with him. He just flew down and basically hung around that edge. Was he strutting at all at that point? No, he wasn't. There were hens with him, but I, I don't know what happened to them. I think they had just gone off into the woods. It was, it was really an odd – uh, situation. I've, not the way that any uh, any typical turkey hunt right off the roost that I've seen has occurred. You know, it's just really odd. Yeah. Well, I'm definitely not the best person to to have, you know talk about about experiences for textbook roosting because man, it seems like every time I get on a roosted bird, they do something a little bit different. Yeah, yeah, and that was him. I mean, that was this 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 one for sure. Now the uh, and and really that's the the first one is not it's just not great for storytelling or podcasting, but each of the the next three really all the rest of them even the two that I called in for people are are awesome stories you know it just works out better that way. Yeah. So so after you killed that first bird, um, this is, sounds like it was like pretty much the first or second day in the trip, and then you. Um, Tell me about the next hunt that transpired down there. Yeah, so after that after that first kill, which would have been on day two, um, we pre- we got stymied the rest of the, of the trip. So let's see here. We hunted Thursday and Friday I killed, and then I hunted Saturday. Yeah, and then Sunday it was raining, and we just drove home. So we actually only hunted Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I killed on Friday. And so once you kill in Tennessee, you're done. So I killed him at like, gosh, 6:45. I think it was real early. Uh, so you know we were done, but we tried. You know we scouted around the rest of the day and everything. And then um, Saturday, we, uh, you know, it was tough hunting. We didn't, weren't able to really get on anything until uh, like 3:30 in the afternoon. And this was really new for me because I've never been able to hunt past one o'clock. You know I've uh, really only turkey hunted in Missouri. Um, so in Missouri, you can only hunt till one. And I, I really enjoy hunting those afternoons because the birds are so much more responsive in the afternoon. Well, on Saturday of that, the first Tennessee trip, we, we struck a gobbler at three thirty or so. 
And it was really close to where I shot the gobbler the day before, actually. And it, we had seen a hen at first, and we just kind of sat down and waited and just, you know, we're just chilling out, even though we were heading back to the vehicle to move slots. And sure enough, the hen started kind of going off a little bit, and then all of a sudden this gobbler fires off, and we started calling, and then the, the, all three of us were talking. It was really cool. Um, and then uh, the the gobbler and the hen must have gotten together, and I think they were mating. But it was it, either that or he had, was fighting off another gobbler. But there was a, cr- a wild, crazy ruckus going on, and I thought, oh man, he's going to come in for sure. We sat there and waited for a little while, and he kept gobbling and gobbling, gobbling, but he'd never come closer. So we tried a flanking maneuver, uh, but we had to go way out of our way just because of how thick that. Uh, the brush was on the edge of that field and by the time we had gotten up to the point where we could flank him because he kept he was climbing the hill um, we just ran out of public ground so we were on private ground I made a last ditch effort to belly crawl up to the the point where I could have gotten a shot as he was exiting the public ground but um, so I just kind of went for broke and he must have seen me because he was at 50 yards and I could see him before that. And when I belly crawled the 20 yards or so to get to the, the ridge top where I could see above, he was gone. Hmm. So is there anything, is there anything on that specific hunt that you may have done differently? Or do you think that was a losing battle? Just, you know, nothing you probably could have done there. Yeah. I don't think there's anything else that we could have done, you know, just that's why I, I like hunting big, tracks of public ground because most of the time you're not going to run out of public you know it's, it's never fun uh playing a chess match with half your brain right <laughs> uh, when you're running against property boundaries it's such a handicap when turkey hunting oh yeah if you can if you can play a chess match with a with a turkey with a big gobbler and you've got all day to roam and work and and literally play the match um, I like my odds of success a lot better than if I'm very limited on the amount of territory I can range. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. So in the, the next day, did you try and get back on that same bird or, um, did you go out to try and find a different one? I guess did you try and put that one to bed. What did you do next? We, we did find a spot where we were going to go the next morning and we got up early and TJ and I went there and Amanda and Holly stayed back at the cabin and we got in there and sure enough, we're walked down the trail. Oh, I don't know, a couple hundred yards. And as it started getting light, we heard a gobble. Actually, we had just walked right past it. Again, that's why you always walk slow and cautious. Right. Um, so we actually, this is a really cool story because we get, we almost, we set up right away. As soon as we heard him, we just kind of turned around and set up because he was that close. And at, as we got at, right after we got set up and started calling, a hen flew from, from the direction that we were hearing the gobble or that was still in the roost. And she flew down and not down. She flew from tree to tree and she just perched in a tree that was right next to us. I mean, this hen is 20 yards away from us. The base of the tree is five yards away from me, and she is just going off. She was just nonstop uh, purring and clucking. And 
the gobbler was gobbling his head off. And I thought, man, this is the trap is set right here, right? This guy doesn't have a chance. He's just gonna come right in, and this is gonna be easy peasy, right? Uh, no, it's turkey hunting, right? <laughs> so I, he just kept gobbling, and he would not come in. So eventually, after like 20 minutes of that, and like I'm gonna start calling, right? So we're gonna escalate this thing. And when I started calling, you could tell his his interest was even more so. Uh, he started gobbling more. And it was with this more intention, and but still, after 20 minutes of that, he he wasn't having it. He was actually, I could tell, he started working away from us. He started working up his little uh, finger that he was on. And so, even though we still had this hen and this tree right above us, I'm like, I'm not going to sit around and wait. You know, I'm very impatient when it comes to uh, turkey hunting. So, uh, you know, I got up and TJ and I talked about it. What we're going to do? We looked at Onyx because we're in unfamiliar territory. And of course, when we get up and do this, the hen flies away, and we started uh, a flanking procedure. And it was interesting because this uh, this chunk of land is is very similar to Missouri. It's just not as uh, dramatic or drastic. You know, sure. it's rolling hills, and, but it's just a little bit softer. So, what I what was really interesting is uh, we got set up on we flanked him. We got set up on him. And I, it was just a little bit difficult on the map to see everything because the lines, you know, when I'm looking at my Onyx map, I typically have it in hybrid mode where you can see the satellite imagery and the contour line, the topographical contour line. Mm-hmm. But they were so far spread apart that it was kind of difficult to read. So at any rate, we go and we flank him and we set up on him. And sure enough, he came into about 40 yards, but it was just that he had the advantage in that setup and and he won um i saw him run off he he just saw something he didn't like and i didn't really like our setup either i i see why it didn't work out and so what I, the the changes i made on the second one because i i just i looked at the map and i thought if i was him i'm gonna go right here and i dropped a pin and i changed my map setting from hybrid mode to topo mode to where I'm not looking at the imagery now. I'm only looking at the lines. And we did a 400-yard – well, I shouldn't say that. We walked towards them slowly, um, probably a half mile. And once we got there, about 45 minutes after the encounter, I, uh, where we thought that he would be, I called, and sure enough, he was right across the, uh, the ravine on the, on the other knob facing us. And he, he replied back immediately. So uh, after changing my mat, I, we started a flanking procedure that was, I, I looked at it. We were at one point 398 yards away from him. So when we first identified him, we were 190 yards from him. And then during our flank, we went so far around that we were at 400 yards because the topography is so gentle. I, I think that it took that big of a loop around to successfully flank him again. And we got up uh, on top of him and came down to him. And as I got to where I thought we were, you know, about 150 yards away, I called, he gobbled right away. And we closed the distance just a little bit more, probably 20 more yards and set up. And I called, well, I didn't even think I called. I just scratched some leaves and it was a show. He came in strutting. And I've, no, I've, it's the best drumming I've heard 
his drumming was so loud. It was really cool. And TJ was behind me. He was filming, but it was, it was really thick in that area. Uh, you can't see the turkey while I'm shooting it, but you know, the, the camera's rolling and you can, you know, you, you hear the shot and then you seem to get up and running and everything. And, um, that was was a really nice guy, but he was actually a double bearded, uh, like 10, 10 inch plus on both beards and oh, wow. inch and a quarter spurs. He was a good one. So the, on that one, the, I guess the reason that he didn't come in off the roost, do you think that's because there was another hen there with him that you just couldn't see in addition to the one that was right next to you? Do you think that's the whole reason? No. That he didn't. Why do you, why do you think he did what he did? I, that I can't explain. Um, maybe because of the size of their brain, I guess. I, I don't know. <laughs> but you just wouldn't think that you could draw it up any better. You know, the hen that he was roosting with uh, came right down to us. The only thing I can figure is maybe he was tired of her shenanigans. But <laughs> uh, kidding aside, I, I, I don't know. I can't explain it. But I know that, you know, once I started calling, there was just a total difference in his tone. Even though he didn't come in, you know, I could tell he was going to be responsive, and, and we could uh, we could be able to we'd be able to play the game with this guy. Yeah, and again, the key thing was having enough land to really roam and be able to do a, you know a full loop. And because imagine if there had been a property line up above where that bird ended up, then you wouldn't be able to take that big loop. Then you'd have to risk going down that you know rolling slope and then back up and probably get getting spotted. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I I know that you know this was a a, a kind of a shock to me. Not really a shock to me, but it was just um, it was eye-opening as the woods came to light that morning. You know just how gently rolling these these hills were, and how far we would have to go around to get out of bird's eye view. You know, right? And I mean, I guess sometimes it can be bad, even in the steep stuff too. If it, if there's not a whole lot of foliage up, I mean, you can still. It seems like you can see clear across the ravines and almost to the point where if you're hunting one hillside, you're almost wanting to hunt the other hillside just so you can be able to see so much. Um, but I can see how in some of the more gentle sloping stuff, you run into the same problem just on a different scale. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say that, you know, a lot of turkey hunters and, and I would include my former self in this, in this regard, uh, want to see a lot when they get set up and, it just, it, I, for me, it doesn't work out that way. And, you know, I, I quit doing that and it has led to some really good results. I don't want to see a long way. You know, I want that time to come in uh, to that 20 to 30 yard range and poke his head up and blast him in the head. Yep. Yep. That makes sense. The, so when you, when you set up, I mean, ideally, if you have a steep slope, then that tells you pretty much exactly where you're going to set up. And are you probably not as concerned if you don't have like, you know, the biggest tree to set up against or the best back cover? Cause as soon as he sees you, he's getting, you know, shot in the face. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I like to set up in, in a shadow, um, you know, preferably with my back against the tree. Uh, but even that, I, if I, if I go that route and I'm setting with my back up against the tree, I slouch, you know, not good for your pasture, of course, uh, uh, but I like to slouch and get as low as possible. And when you remain in the shadows, that's a huge advantage. Um, and I'll, I'll take the, the shadow and maybe just a little bit of a backdrop over sitting, you know, on a tree that's out exposing the sunlight. Yep. 
Yep, that totally makes sense. Was that pretty much your turkey um, experience in Tennessee in summary? Yeah, it was because, you know, when we went on that second trip, when the whole family went, I, you know, had the ability to hunt on Sunday morning also. Uh, so, of course, I got up early and I went and, you know, I hunted for like two hours or something like that. And no luck. I didn't, didn't I don't even think I heard anything that morning. I can't remember for sure. But I know we had to get back and, you know, the whole pack out procedure and, and the cabin and everything. And we had to be checked out by 11 o'clock. So just didn't really have the opportunity to hunt hard. Uh, but I did go for a little bit to no avail. And then, yeah, the very next day was the opener in Missouri. Okay. And then for the, that Missouri hunt, the hills are a little bit steeper, bigger. Do you think that helps or hurts? I think it helps if you know how to use it. You know, um, yeah, if you know how to use the terrain, I find it helpful. There are certain instances, of course, where it can be a little bit more challenging, but yeah, not just knowing that you don't have to do a 400 yard flank. You can just get on the other side of the ridge, you know, um, is I, I find it helpful. Yeah. So go through Turkey hunt number one in Missouri for me. All right. So opening day, TJ and I got up at three o'clock and, and we drove down to one of our, uh, favorite Turkey hunting spots. And it's a, a place where, uh, met up with you on our deer hunt last fall yep and uh let's see we split up because tj had a hankering to kill his own gobbler you know he wanted to do it all on his own which i love and you know it's it's pretty cool that he desires to do that so we split up for the uh you know for the early morning hunt and you know we were in tennessee the day before so we had no birds roosted or anything like that we're going on historical knowledge and uh so I, I dropped him off and I went a, a few hundred yards past him. And sure enough, as soon as I started up the hill to get to where I wanted to be, um, I busted a couple of birds off roost and I wasn't too worried because they flew in his direction though. And then, I mean, it didn't take long at all. And I had, I had gobblers, uh, goblin down below me. And I had one particular gobbler of which I had history with gobbling above me. And it was, it was kind of funny because, you know, I, for a, for a second, I let, uh, I guess a few minutes, I let emotion come into play and I started after the gobbler that was up the hill that I had, uh, history with. And as I'm walking up there, you know, cause he, he was notorious for only gobbling once or twice in the morning. He was pretty quiet in the morning for whatever reason. And I started up towards him cause I'm like, Oh yeah, I want to get this guy. I know exactly where he's roosted. But as I'm working my way towards him, he is not gobbling anymore at all. And I've got what sounds to be like anywhere between three and five gobblers below me just gobbling their heads off. I'm like, all right, uh, this is ridiculous. Take the emotion out of it and go to where the gobblers are, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I switched tracks and went back down. And sure enough, there was, I, I believe it ended up being four gobblers. It was hard to tell. I never did see the other two, but. They were kind of in two two groups of two, and they each had hens with them. And I had to make the decision on which way to go, um, because every time I would call, they would answer. And I set up twice. I think they would answer, but they I could tell by the way they were acting. They had hens with them, and they were doing their thing, strutting back and forth. 
and neither one of these groups of birds were going to come in. So uh, I, uh, I did a, another flanking maneuver and uh, actually I ditched my vest in it because it was pretty thick in this area and it had shut up at this point. They just quit talking, no more gobbling, even to, to call. So I, I ditched my turkey vest and uh, just started easing down the hill real slow, real gently, and using the terrain to my advantage. Um, and sure enough, about 20 minutes after I ditched my vest, and you know I had only gone about 100 yards probably, um, I looked, I kind of peeked up and I could see over the uh, over the hilltop, uh, I saw the tips of fans, and for. <laughs> It caught me in mid stride and I saw the tips of the fan. And so, you know, I was kind of in an uncomfortable position and I was like, man, this is, you know, the tenuous situation. And he was working back and forth on his little finger there, had a little bit of a flat spot. And I could hear him, you know, purring and I could hear some hens in there. And I could, every once in a while, I catch glimpses of other turkey movements going on and they're only 30 yards away from me. And I actually, there was a, a small barbed wire fence that was half down right in front of me. And I had to, you know, after like 10 minutes, I'm like, I got to do something. I got to make a shot here because uh, I could still only see the tips of their feathers. And because you know, they weren't moving towards me or away from me, they were just working back and forth. Yep. And so I had to step over this barbed wire and I stepped onto a log, which put me about, I don't know, probably 12 inches off of the ground level. And, and I had to wait another couple of minutes for him to work back. And sure enough, I was just the right height to where I could see like the, the top of his neck and his head. And they had no idea I was there. And so I got like a 30 yard shot with, you know, clean head shot. And that, as soon as I shot, the other gobbler gobbled. And, uh, and I, I ran down there because the, the gobbler that I shot was flopping all around and everything. And I got to like 10 yards from this other gobbler. He didn't know what to do. And I'm 10 yards away from him, and he flies off the bluff edge, and he was gobbling in the air as he was flying away. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard that. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was interesting. Can you so shoot multiple was, birds uh, in one day in Missouri? Or are you capped at, like, one no. per day? No, you're capped. I mean, I could have shot him easily, but, uh, you know, one bird a day. And uh, so, yeah, after that, I uh, – I brought him back up to my pack and of course texted TJ and let him know. And I, I didn't have a scale with me and it was warming up quickly, but he was a, I, I believe him to be about a 25 pound gobbler and he had inch and a quarter spurs and like an 11 inch beard. Uh, he was, he's the biggest gobbler I've ever killed. He was, he was huge. Probably even bigger than that mystery gobbler that you had ex- uh, a history with. Well, that story is <laughs> about to come full circle. Oh, is it? Because, uh, yeah, yeah. So I, uh, you know, I, I had to take care of this bird because it was getting warm quick. And, you know, again, you can only hunt a one in Missouri. So I wanted to get him on ice and get back down to the hunting area. And, you know, TJ and I were going to hunt together for the rest of the morning till one. So I, you know, I did that. I hustled up and, you know, took care of, butchered the bird. Uh, got the breast and leg thighs out and put them on ice and then I hustled back down and uh, you know at this point it was it was pretty hot and it was dry <clears throat> so walking in the woods was loud and it was windy also it was 
just, you know, pretty tough hunting conditions. And it took a while to do all that. So by the time I got back to TJ, um, we basically had, you know, one good strategic move. You know, we could have just plundered through the woods and, you know, done a few random setups or whatever. Uh, but I, I like value, you know, quality over quantity. So I figured, all right, we're going to go all the way around this bluff and we're going to come back up the ridge and it's going to be loud. You know, we were in the, on the Southern end, it's going to be hot and those leaves were dry. It was super loud. And, and, you know, what most people would consider this is like terrible condition, but it's not about the approach. It's about the final approach and what's on the other side of that ridgetop. And sure enough, when we got up there, um, it was like, it was probably 1215. I started calling at 12, 12 o'clock, probably just soft calls. And about 1215, when we literally got to the top and, and we'd slowed down on the final approach and anytime we would walk a few feet, I would rake, you know, scratch leaves. And sure enough, after a few minutes of that, uh, 1215, I called and immediately a gobbler gobbled and was a hundred yards away. And so TJ and I set up real quick and we're right in that area where I started the morning, where I know that this gobbler roosts and I have some history with him. Yep. And, uh, so we barely had time to like throw our stuff down and get set up. I got the video recorder in my hand and, uh, I couldn't see him, but I could tell by TJ's reaction that, you know, he was coming in. Um, and I just raked leaves a couple of times and he came right in. TJ got a 25 yard shot and he blasted him and he was, uh, a, a one inch spurs or inch and an eighth spurs. And he was probably like a 21 pound bird, nice big gobbler, uh, TJ's biggest ever gobbler. So TJ and I both shot our biggest gobblers ever on the same day on public ground in Missouri. It was an awesome day. Uh, that's that's a great that's fantastic yeah yeah you know in uh in today's society and and world uh teenagers are uh well they're no different than adults right we're all distracted by work and phones and digital and social media and everything and you know to have that type of experience with your son in the woods when you're not worried about all that other crap is priceless uh he, he must have told me a hundred times over the last few days how much fun he had that day and how awesome it was. And that's what it's all about. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Sam is, uh, you know, she talked about wanting to go turkey hunting before she shot her first bird and then she shot her first bird. And now it's like, okay, when can we go again? <laughs> what can I buy more tags for Wisconsin? <laughs> so she's going to yeah. buy some more tags. She's, she's looking forward to going back out. That's awesome. And especially, you know, once you get him eating that wild turkey meat, right, it, it doesn't even have to take a turkey hunter to want to go turkey hunting once you eat that stuff because, oh, that meat is delicious. Yeah, we're not quite on Chef Ted level yet, but we're trying to get there. Well, I don't know. That wild turkey uh, ranch pizza that you made looked excellent. Yeah, it was pretty good. Well, we'll have to – we could probably even do a whole podcast on – on wild game cooking. I'd love to pick your brain on that topic entirely. I think we could and we should. So one thing I wanted to ask about in, in relation to, you know, kind of the minimal style 
and this always seems to kind of work together with hills like you had in Missouri, like you had a little bit in, in Tennessee, the minimalist style with like little gear and the setup and using the terrain to your advantage. It's not just with your story, but also so many stories that I, you know, hear and watch on YouTube and my own experiences as well, hunting in hill country that oh so often you get birds that you have to be ready to shoot when they just poke over the top of the hill because they're looking as soon as they can see over that. If they don't like what they see. If they're expecting to see, you know, a hen and there's nothing up there, or if they see movement or they see a little silhouette or whatever, you know, whether they see their your eyes moving or, you know, it's like you got to be ready to shoot. And if you don't, then you might lose that opportunity entirely. And that's one thing that, for me at least, makes filming in the woods just incredibly difficult um, in that hill country type terrain, um, whether without a decoy. I find that to be very challenging. And you, you know, from the sounds of it, and, you know, I watched your YouTube video also, you started, you know, trying to film those hunts this spring. And had you tried doing that in the past, or was this kind of the first year that you brought a camcorder into the woods and a GoPro and started to try and get that footage? It's the first time I've taken a, a video camera into the woods. And uh, it, it's my first year of really diligently trying hard at it i've i've done the gopro thing in the past and in fact my previous largest gobbler um i killed what i had the gopro on a tree and you could you know you could see the me shooting the gobbler and running up to it and everything but um like the i believe the, the youtube video that you're referring to you know i was actually able to catch my buddy you could see him in the corner of the frame and you can see the tom coming in strutting and and you can see him blast him and you know, it's all, it, it, it worked out really good. And that would have actually worked out really good had I opened the lens cover on the, <laughs> on the, on the video camera because, um, you know, it was just, it was really sunny at the, right at that point in time. And I just, you know, in a, in a hurry, of course, because this bird came in within two minutes of striking him, uh, maybe three minutes, this bird was dead. And so I'm in a hurry and I opened my video recorder and, I assumed that I couldn't see the display screen very well, you know, how the LCD screens are in the sun. Yep. I just assumed that that's why. And so I'm just pointing, oh, man, I'm like, I am doing great. I'm pointing in the direction. And and I was hiding behind the tree, uh, unlike a shooter, which is out in front of the tree, you know. I was behind it. But I could read uh, Dakota, my buddy, I could read his body language perfect. And I knew that the gobbler was approaching. I knew that he was getting ready to aim. And I was pointing this camera in the perfect direction and I kept it rolling the whole time. And as he's coming up on the kill, uh, he's like, Hey, lens covers closed or open, uh, closed. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, that's <laughs> my chance. <laughs> Cause he had but, that GoPro uh, running. Yeah, exactly. The, the perils of self-filming running gun, turkey hunting. Oh man, it's tough. I just find it. I don't have enough time to get the camera out and get it set up. You know, putting the GoPro on the tree is, is fine, but getting the camera out and a tripod set up and everything. Whew. Yeah. And what you mentioned there key is that running gun style. If you're, if you're hunting with, you know, on a field, it's significantly easier. Like, you know, when I, what we did with Sam on her first hunt this year, but get out into the Hills, man, that's a total different story out in the, you know, thick timber. And I know a couple different, uh, scenarios where number one, 
this has happened multiple times. It's already happened once this year to me in the last week, but it's happened in the past too, where I'll be sitting up on the top of like a, over the crest of a ridge, like on the flat, waiting for the birds to walk up. And, and oh, so often they do, right? They'll, they'll fly down off the roost and they'll land on the, you know, the tip of the uh, point or on the side hill and they'll walk right up and start strutting on the top. But yeah. oh, so many times I've also seen them where they just gobble and you know, they got like five more feet to go before that head's visible. And they just stay on the side of that hill. And eventually they, the next time you hear them gobble, they're, they're down, you know, hundred feet off the edge and they just never quite crested the lip. And I've also had it where, and I got my camcorder just set maybe, you know, a couple inches higher than my eyesight so I can get a better view. And I've had it happen before where I see the, the crest of two heads pop up right over the, the lip of the ridge. And then they're only there for a couple seconds. And I couldn't quite make out whether they were Tom's or Jake's. And then they were gone. I'm like, okay, they probably, you know, got a peek of the decoy or whatever. Maybe they'll come up. I'll get a better look. Never did. And I go look at the footage later and the camera's just high enough to see two big beards on each of those gobblers. Um, then if I, if I would have known, you know, made a decision quicker, I could have shot one of them. Uh, but it's, it's tough to, it's tough to do because the way that run and gun works, I mean, you just can't make that, you can't get away with that movement like you could otherwise, if you had like your ground blind or something, you make that 12 inch movement between your trigger guard and your camera, that's going to get you busted. And if you got the camera a little bit higher, like I did, then they might see that camera and think, oh, I don't like that. And then you're back right off. And it makes the footage tough because it's like, yeah, you get great audio, you know, fantastic audio, but you're, you're hidden and the turkey's hidden. And by the time you get the turkey in eyesight, he shot within a couple seconds. So you just get oftentimes a couple seconds of footage. Uh, and it makes it very difficult, but I don't know that I would give up the challenge and the, just the, uh, excitement of that run and gun and hill country turkey hunting just to try and get you know better footage i i'm with you 100 percent uh it does not appeal me appeal to me at all to sit in a in a blind and and wait for turkeys to come to me you know the excitement of running gun through the hills chasing the gobble that's where it's all about to me and i'll accept that challenge and accept the fact that i'm not going to get the strutter coming in from 200 yards away um, but the excitement of being in close quarters with that thing, and he's looking for the source of the noise. He's coming in looking specifically. His attention isn't drawn to a decoy or anything like that. It's it's ultimately exciting. Oh, yeah. Well, and it just goes hand-in-hand hand with carrying less stuff in the woods, right? No decoy, no yeah. ground blind. Yeah. Well, it would suck to carry a ground blind up in the, those kind of hills. Oh yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine. I can't even imagine carrying a decoy. They're just, you know, they're bulky and loud and that's just, I, I quit even carrying a turkey vest after I took my vest off, uh, on the opening day of Missouri turkey season to kill that bird. I haven't put it back on yet. So what all do you carry really then? On it. If you, so if no vest, no blind or no blind. Yeah. No decoy. You got your shotgun obviously. And then what else are you carrying? Shotgun and binos and a mouth call are that that's the essentials uh well i shouldn't say because i'm when i go out i'm planning on being out all day uh hopefully it doesn't take all day but i'm going to be out until the one o'clock buzzer and i don't care if i'm at the furthest point from the truck at one o'clock whatever so i have to have water also so basically i just take my badlands dash pack with my platypus um, hydration pack and uh you know i'll take a, a few snacks but the only thing I need is water, 
guns, binos, and a mouth call. And, you know, of course, I'm taking the cameras now also, but which is just a GoPro and a video recorder. But And I, and I need my phone, too. I just, and now the list is growing, right? <laughs> this is what we do, right? It's, it's like, oh, God, this, this. But you got to have the phone so that you can look at the maps and and plan your flanking, you know, unless you know the ground really well. But um, but that's it, though. You know, uh, mouth call, binos, gun, water, cell phone, and then, of course, the cameras. Any kind of foam pad or anything to sit on? I do take a foam pad, and it's that's one of those things that, you know, it's a lot of times in the heat of the setup, if I know he's coming in, I don't want to even worry about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's nice to have, you know, in a scenario where he might be a little bit further off or if you just want to sit down and take a break for a few minutes, but I don't, I'm only doing that if somebody else is with me and they want to. Um, but it's, it's nice to have. And considering I have such little, uh, I've got room because I've got a lot, you know, minimalist on everything else. It doesn't really hurt to have that thrown in there. Yeah. No, I see what you're saying. I mean, sometimes it's like you're moving around so much that, I mean, if you're really doing just a you know a ten minute setup or whatever, you don't need it for sure. But then there's other times when he hangs up and you're you're playing the game and you're sitting there not moving. You don't know if there's hens that can you know peek through and see you through the brush, and you might be sitting there for forty five minutes. And that little extra cushion is sure nice to have. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty impatient. I, it's it's rare that I'll sit in one spot for forty five minutes. Usually, I think you you can tell if he's going to play the game. Um, or, or or not, and then it's time to get up and try again on a reflank or, you know, whatever the next maneuver may be. So are you always trying to basically get in a position, then do your setup, sit down, and call him in and shoot him basically as he's moving? Or do you ever say, you know, forget it, I'm going to go make a move, I'm going to pop over the ridge, and I might have two seconds, but I'm going to get a shot off? Uh, I'm My... The, the way that I prefer to do it is if, if I, if I don't know anything, so, you know, no gobble, no Bruce location or anything like that. Uh, let's just say it's mid morning and, and I've got nothing, no leads. I'm going to hit a ridge top trail, right? I, I, I gotta be on a trail and it, you really can't be on a trail that has, uh, like natural for Missouri anyway, gravel, because it's, it's just really loud, you know, I mean, you got to pick your way through that stuff or a lot. I'll just walk through it fast because I know that this is not going to work out. Uh-huh. So I'll, I'll walk very quietly. And when I get to specific spots, I'm looking for fingers that come off of this ridge. When I get to fingers, before I get to the crest, I'm going to call really soft probably, you know, two, maybe even three sequences. And then by the time I get to like the, the crest of the finger, I'm calling down the finger, pointing down the finger, calling loudly, trying to, you know, elicit a response from either side of that finger. Okay. And then you just do that finger to finger all the way down on those secondary ridges off that main trail. Yeah, Exactly. Now, there's always that one finger that you know is going to be good or, you know, they're not all created equal is my point. Um, There's some that I'll just blaze through and not even, you know, I'll just call as I'm walking even because the name of the game is still to cover as much territory as you can to find a gobble, you know. Yep. 
So then if you do strike one up when you're on one of those secondary ridges, uh, how do you know how much further you can move forward before you got to just sit down and uh, set up? I want to close as much ground as possible before calling again. So I'm looking to get the goal is usually kind of unstated in my mind. I want to get to where I'm at least 150 yards or closer from the gobbler, a hundred yards preferably. And I want to get to where I'm just over the, the crest of the hill, the crest of the finger to where he's got to poke his head up and come and uh, investigate the, you know, the hen. Um, so that's, that has really worked out well for me. So again, I'm going to, I'm going to locate him and then I'm going to move rapidly in his direction and get set up. Hopefully, you know, 150 to hundred yards away. And as soon as I get set up, I'm, I'm going to scratch leaves while I'm moving stuff uh, or my partner is moving stuff. I'll be scratching leaves, you know, to, to, um, you know, to cover the human noises. Yep. And then as soon as we get set that set up, I'm going to start with a very soft calling sequence. And I mean, I'm going to say probably nine out of 10 times when it goes down this way up to this point, then he's already, he's coming in and, that next job after calling, after sitting down and getting set up and calling, he's going to be, you know, within a hundred yards and coming in typically. So these are all, all these midday or mid morning, or I guess not even really just the earliest afternoon. Would you say that the Toms in this scenario are most likely on their own? Or do you ever have the scenario where they have hens with them too, but they're still just, going to sneak around, you know, just enough, far enough away from them to see what's on top of that ridge. So I, I don't know when they've got more than one hand with them, it's tough from what I can tell, or even if there's another gobbler with them, I don't know. They just get reluctant to move, but I, and I'll also say that throughout the day, it get, they get more and more responsive. So, um, a, a mid morning bird, for example, it's just going to take a little bit longer. They're not going to come in where, you, you know, it's, it's a rapid fire, you know, not always anyway. And then the later you get in the day, um, you know, it seems like, especially from like 11 o'clock on, you're going to have to, you got to be, you got to get set up real quick because they're going to come in. And a lot of times they're going to come in on a string. They may be silent though. Um, you know, so you gotta you get, you know, there's varying degrees. Sometimes they come in uh, gobbling the whole way. Sometimes it's just drumming. Sometimes, like on TJ's bird, he gobbled that one time when we struck him, and he came in silent the whole time. He was uh, pecking at bugs in the in the dirt and came in completely silent. So, to answer your question, it's just so many varying degrees. I don't, I don't know. That's a that's a tough one to answer. I guess because of the bird like nature of them. Yeah. But you would you say you still prefer? if you can to roost on the night before and get in the driver's seat for the next day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's, it's always good to know where the birds are, but it doesn't bother me at all to not, I mean, it's just one little tiny advantage, um, more important than where the roosting is where you anticipate them to fly down because that can be totally different. You know, I mean, if you don't have a clue where they're flying, good to know the area where they are but it's you know you, you're not 
if you're not right where they're going to land, you're not going to be in the game anyway. Do you find that where they fly down tends to be pretty predictable in terms of you know what the exact uh, terrain feature is, or does it just seem like it's all over the map half the time? I, I don't really see a whole lot of correlation to it. Now, I will say that it seems like on private ground, and I, I think that public birds, especially here in Missouri, where you know there's a lot of hunting pressure, and private birds are it's almost like a different species i've heard marjorie say that and i totally agree they're it's almost they're just like a totally different animal so i don't see that public land birds just fly and out into a field and land it just doesn't happen here or that i've seen anyway uh but it seems like you hear a lot or see that a lot on tv type of scenarios you know mm-hmm. uh so the the day that I called that bird in for Dakota, we had actually heard a, a gobble pretty quickly out of the truck, you know, before it was even light yet. And we were able to maneuver through some pretty thick stuff and get into a very favorable position on this bird. And it was really cool. We actually crossed uh, uh, probably a 15-foot uh, creek bed, you know, like a washed out. We were real steep on both sides, and we had to walk across a dead uh, elm tree that was uh, – you know that um that had fallen and it was like a bridge a little footbridge right it was really exciting in the dark uh but so anyway we were working our way towards them and i'd never been to this area before and all of a sudden it kind of hit me i'm like he's on the other side of this ravine and he's facing us clearly and hasn't turned because we can tell by the way he's gobbling and i thought I, I, it just kind of hit me. This bird's going to fly right into our lap. And I told Dakota this, my buddy, and sure enough, we just, I just we started easing a little bit more in the direction where I kind of thought that would happen. And Garrett, I'm not kidding you within, uh, within a minute of me saying that he, you could hear him wing flop and you could see this huge bird flying right to us. He landed 15 yards from us and <laughs> it was in the, was in the pretty thick stuff so again you know you wouldn't think that a gobbler or any turkey would want to land in this stuff but again these public land birds uh didn't surprise me and uh my buddy actually got a shot at him but you know at 15 yards you got to be dead nuts right on the head to because you're not getting any expansion of your shot and he missed but he was able to capitalize later in the day was that the same bird, do you think, or was it a totally different bird that you guys um, got set up on later in the day? Uh, it's hard to say. It, I, I have no reason to suspect it was the same bird, but it was a uh, half mile from there, so it could have been. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's there's definitely something to say about sticking out there because, I mean, gosh, how many, how many guys do you know that, you know, get on a, a roosted bird like that and then they – they strike out whether they miss or whether they don't get a shot opportunity, the bird does something else, and then they just go home and, you know, plan their hunt for the next day. Whereas if you stay out there, man, it's like you got the whole day just starting up, and the roost is just one one small part of that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, the longer the day goes with turkey hunting, the more excited I get, and the, the more uh, I think that you have things in your favor typically. Uh, the more responsive they get. And I have a hard time saying no. It's like, if I've got, you know, something I have to get to for work or something, you know, it's just like, oh, it's, it's, it's difficult to, 
to sever the the losses or whatever, you know. And uh, some people, I hear people say, "Oh man, good for you for sticking it out." Or that's not the challenge for me. The challenge is actually leaving the woods. You know. Yeah. So run me through that that uh, second hunt that you guys did that day, or you know, the second setup. Yeah. So after you know, after he missed that that gobbler that morning uh he was a little down about it but you know uh i just kept telling him, hey we're gonna we're gonna get one we're gonna get one and sure enough we did but uh we put uh, probably about nine miles my my tracker ended up like eight and a half i think and um i had i didn't start it for the first half mile so uh yeah we put it about nine miles and we were just working our way back uh along a ridge line just like i had described earlier and we got to a finger that I, it just, it felt right. It looked right on the map. And most importantly, it just looked like good, um, you know, late morning, early afternoon, um, and Turkey activity place because of, uh, you know, it was burned a few years ago and it had thick undergrowth, you know, so, you know, it could be potentially hen nesting area as well. And I did it, you know, exactly like we described where, I got to uh, the point where we were approaching the finger, and I called softly. Nothing. Got a little bit higher uh, towards the peak of the finger. We weren't quite to the peak of the finger yet, and I escalated the calling a little bit louder, and he fired off. And he was only, I'm going to say, 150 yards away at that time. And I think, you know, like I said, it was like three minutes later that bird was dead. So after we struck him, um, you know, we just, we ran like 50 yards off the trail, I'm guessing, and got set up, uh, got the GoPro set up and got the video recorder out, of course, and I hid behind this really big tree and just did some scratching and light calling, and he never gobbled again, but I I, I knew he was coming in, you know, once you um, kind of understand this system you know it's pretty easy to tell when they're going to come in and you know sometimes it's, it's better to just shut up but i really like raking leaves uh you know scratching leaves and mimicking the the hen scratching uh works out really well and this kind of goes back to a previous question too when he blasted that time a hen flew away so he was with a hen and they were both coming in. And I mean, they were both coming in on a string hot. He was strutting the whole way. And I guess she was following him. Huh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Again, they're, they're birds with bird-like habits that are tough to predict. Yeah, it makes them seem like they're smart when in really, reality it's like <laughs> the total opposite. Yeah, yeah. They're just, yeah, they're survivors, right? I mean, there's so many different creatures in the woods that are out to kill a turkey. They better be survivors, right? Yeah. When you call, you, when you mentioned soft calling or ramping it up or whatever, what exactly are you doing? What would you consider more of like a, a soft calling that you might do as you approach a ridge? Once you get on top, what does amping it up mean to you? Are you yelping? Are you cutting? Are you doing Jake yelps? Like what, what kind of sequences or, or uh, calling scenarios do you go through? I am by no means an expert caller. I, I'm, I would say, mediocre at best. Um, I just try to match what seems to make sense with the lay of the land. Um, and it always makes 
percent. You know, you can never really argue with starting things off in a soft way, right? Just like if you're, you know, you're going to rattle uh, in the fall, you know, you would do a, a grunting sequence first. Just, you know, you don't want to scare something that's close. So, you know, nice and soft. Um, that just seems to make sense. And, you know, I'll, I'll throw some purrs in, but I'm really just clocking and, you know, just keeping it really, really simple. Um, I don't really, I don't even carry other types of calls anymore. I've been through that. And, you know, you hear some people say, well, well he would never answer the slate call, but the box call, he would hammer every time. I don't know. I, I don't see a huge difference in that. Um, again, I'm not a good caller. I think that I killed birds on perseverance and woodsmanship more than calling. Gotcha. Well, man, there's definitely no, no arguing with success. So when you're able to knock one down, it's like, yeah, maybe, maybe being a better, better caller could help in some scenarios, but it's also, doesn't seem like it's a huge, a huge hindrance, especially for this style of hunting. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's been so many hens that I've heard in the woods. It's like, that's gotta be a hunter or that just, what is wrong with that creature? Right. That sounds terrible. And I, you know, I mean, I think there's a lot of variance and fluctuation in Turkey talk. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you hear a hen where it's like, man, that just sounds, that sounds perfect. It sounds so stereotypical, real Turkey. And then, like you said, other times you get, you get yelping or, or, you know, just like the sequence of, of cutting or something that just sounds off. And you're like, man, yeah, that's, that's gotta be a hunter. And it's not. Um, so, and they, they say what most, most turkeys are, I mean, you know, probably more turkeys have been killed with a box call than any other call I've often heard. And most box calls that you hear, the store-bought variety don't sound all that great. They just make it really easy to, to make a tone that has, you know, a really predictable, realistic, uh, sequence to the notes. If you kind of know what it sounds like, but in terms of the actual, you know, pitch or the, the sound that it's making, it can be all over the map. Yeah, definitely. And you definitely have your hands tied up working a box call. Yeah, no, I mean, I even as far as like a face mask goes too, um, I've been on the fence about using a face mask versus a, a just face paint. But when I look at myself in like my 360 footage or whatever, as I'm calling, when I have a face mask up and a mouth call, it's like, man, there's no movement there. I really like that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Especially, you know, I mean, I don't care for the clothing that has um, any type of poly in it. Any, you know, it can it can reflect in the sun and do funny things. And those face masks, most of those face masks have a lot of poly in them. Um, I use 100% wool, merino wool. Uh, it's a neck gaiter. Well, you probably have it one also with the first light neck gaiter. Uh, that thing is awesome. I just pull that thing up and I can rest it, you know, on the bridge of my nose, just under my eyes and pull my hat down tight over my eyes. And it really does require that when you're having, you know, 25 yard encounters with these things. Yeah. You got you to get it all sealed up. And that, but that, that Merino neck gaiter will stay on my face. Um, and doesn't reflect at all light in a funny way or anything like that. And it seems like those plastic, you know, the ones that have plastic in them, they don't want to stay up on my face. You know, if I'm talking to my hunting buddy or working a mouth call or whatever, they have a tendency to ride down my face. Mm -hmm. Man, that Merino just stays right in place. 
Have you ever thought about getting one of those Wind River balaclavas that they sell? Because I'm thinking you could probably put that over the top of your hat. And then they got the little ear holes in those as well. So you might be able to heat. Yeah. Then you have to. Then you don't have to worry about it riding. You don't have to worry about it riding down at all. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, so it, it the the first light night gator wouldn't ride down at all if it wasn't for the fact that I I want it to come under my ears, right? Because I don't want any type of hindrance covering my ear. So I'll take the neck gator and um, tuck it underneath the Velcro adjuster on my hat to where the Velcro, uh, you know, the stiff end of the Velcro holds the neck gator in place. The neck gator wraps it down under my ear and then comes back up to my nose, and it just stays in place perfectly. Hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. I think the only piece of gear that I'm curious about, I mean, we touched on most of the other stuff they bring in the woods, but in terms of your shotgun, are you using a, a nice ultralight mobile hunter shotgun, or do you got something that you need to upgrade? As much as we geek out on gear, uh, you would think, but no, I, I've got an old Mossberg 835 that's like an old tank, and I've had it since I was like 12 years old, I think. Uh, shoots a three and a half inch shells. It's you know it's a turkey gun. It's you know camo. Uh, it's all camoed out and tree bark, um, but it's 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 old. It's big. It's loud. It's clunky. Uh, definitely nothing special. And, you know, as we were talking before the cast, it would be interesting to look at, you know, getting some type of an ultralight set up. And really, I think a, a single shot would be just fine. Should be, you know, truthfully about it. But um, I don't know. I might look at that for next season. But, yeah, for now, it's the old Mossberg 835. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you two things that I like about my wife's shotgun that I got her. It's a Mossberg 510 Mini. It's very short overall. I don't know what the overall length is, but it's very short. It's got the short stock and the barrel is like 18 and a half inches. And the, um, the barrel's not extending too much further than the magazine. So you put your, if you do run a sling, you would attach the sling basically right, uh, at the front of that magazine. And then the barrel doesn't stick up hardly at all. So when you're climbing under stuff or going through bushwhacking, that barrel's not getting caught on, on little like saplings and branches and stuff that you're crawling underneath, which is super nice. Um, and then if you're in some kind of awkward position where you think the bird's in one spot and then he pops over the hill in a different spot, or you're just in a really goofy, you know, you can't shoulder the gun very well type of situation, having that short stock and a little red dot on there allows you to, like that bird I shot on Sunday, I was just about, I had that thing shouldered against my bicep just because he was cranked around almost behind me uh, when they first came in. And it worked pretty well with that short gun. And it only weighs like five and a half pounds or something like that. Yeah, that sounds like it would be the, the ideal weapon for my style of uh, hunting here, that's for sure. Because you don't need, you know, 60-yard nice groups for uh, for the style of hunting that you're doing. You know, it's like if you got a good 40-yard pattern, it's like, do you really need more? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, yeah, that would work out perfectly because I, I don't even sling my gun when hunting even with all those miles and everything you know I, I don't like the fabric of a sling rubbing against the fabric of the shirt on my shoulder and it's right next to your ear so it hinders your ability to hear other things because you you know your your brain naturally is drawn to that attention 
And so I, I carry my gun the whole time. So I could see where a five and a half pound shotgun would really come in handy. Yeah. Kicks a little more being that lightweight for what you'd expect with a 20 gauge, but you don't feel it shooting at a turkey. No, you don't feel it when you shoot at a turkey at all, do you? <laughs> no. No, it's funny. When we played back the footage of Sam shooting her bird, I mean, she just gets knocked back like several inches, you know, uh, pushed her pretty good. And I asked her afterwards, like, did you feel the gun kick? Nope, not at all. Yeah, I told you. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. So then I guess the only one we haven't discussed would be my last bird, which I killed last Thursday. You want me to go into the story on that one? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So uh, I was here in Missouri and a new piece of public ground that I never hunted before until this year. And, uh, you know, the, the bird that I called in for Dakota was at, at this particular spot. And it's, uh, what is it? It's like 2,500 acres, something like that. So th- there's a there's a creek that is close to the border, you know, and you got to drive through a spillway to get to the parking lot. And uh, fortunately, it was, uh, it was up too high for most vehicles to cross. And um, I didn't want to cross it. So... I just, you know, parked before it and took my shoes off and rolled my pants up and walked through like knee high water. Um, and I did this on two mornings, the morning that I did it with Dakota. And then, uh, this last Thursday morning, which I did it with Dakota on a Monday. And then I went back on Thursday and it was by myself. And I really enjoy hunting by myself. You know, it's just a different dynamic. Uh, you can just totally focus in on, nothing but hunting and it's like you just forget about everything else mm-hmm. um, and I really hadn't had an opportunity to do that a whole lot this year so I was really looking forward to it and so I crossed the creek and I had a plan on a ridge top that I wanted to hit and start running that ridge top uh, you know right away and I didn't do any scouting the day before I didn't have any roosts or anything like that um, so I get to the top of the ridge and well while I'm climbing to the top of the ridge I can see a couple other cars pulling in close to that creek and they were probably checking it out, you know, and one actually, you know, was a bigger truck and it drove across and made it. And so I, I knew there was some, you know, hunter activity down there. And sure enough, right above the parking lot, there was like two or four goblet. They were just nonstop. And, you know, I thought it, you know, it's not very often that you just, you know, turn your head and go a different direction from active gobbling, but, I just figured that those people closer to that parking lot could have them and I'd be able to strike a bird, uh, you know, on the ridge top that I was on. Yep. And I was beginning to wonder if I, you know, made the wrong decision, but um, I knew that the spot that I really wanted to get to was about three miles deep. And so I pretty much went quickly through the first few miles. And when I got to the spot where, I was really interested in getting to it was about 7 a.m. And sure enough, like a, there's literally, there's like a corner in the, in the property and a, and a corner in the trail, 90 degree turn. And as soon as I got there, I started picking up on sign. And I, not too long after that, I'm still walking down the trail. I called and I heard a gobble respond. And I, it was, he was so far away. Well, first of all, it was really windy. So it was difficult to tell. I just could hear a general area. And I didn't even know for sure if he was responding to me or not. So I huffed it down the trail pretty quickly, uh, you know, probably about a hundred yards, maybe 150 yards. And 
he he gobbled a couple more times in that meantime and you know by then i knew where he was and that he was interested and this is the same spot where in between dakota missing on the fly off from the roost and him shooting at 1240 um we had had a, a tried to get set up on this bird we spent about two hours chasing this guy and we never could catch up to him so I suspected this gobbler that I was hearing now on this last Thursday was that same gobbler that we had chased on that Monday in that same area. Yep. And so, you know, I'm, uh, I'm on the trail still, but I can, I can tell where he is, you know, and again, I would have looked at, had to look at my maps if I didn't have the knowledge of being in there a few days before that and how those fingers were rolling off of that ridge. <clears throat> so I didn't have to look at my phone and I, I ducked off the trail and I had to call one more time just to make sure where he was. And he fired off immediately and he was like a hundred yards away. So I just got up real set up, set up real quickly just with the GoPro didn't even try to get the tripod and camera out. And I, you know, I got set up, I called and he got him. And for about four minutes, I'm going to guess maybe five minutes. He just worked back and forth. He was, I'm sure he was strutting but of course he was, you know, I could see about 25 to 30 yards uh, over the crest of the hill. And he was below that, you know, he was probably 50 to 60 yards away, <clears throat> but he was expecting me to come to him. So after about five minutes of that, um, he must've been, you know, how they strut back and forth. He must've been a, like one of the, the, at the end of it, of his little strut zone and facing away because he gobbled. And I'm like, here we go. He's moving away. And I've lost patience. And I thought, all right, I'm going to army crawl up on this sucker. Mm -hmm. And so I did. I, I belly crawled um, up to about uh, – I, I, I crawled about 15 yards. And and then he gobbled while I'm crawling. And I suspected he heard movement in the leaves, and he probably thought that that was the hen. Uh, so he gobbled, and I was like, all right, I better get ready. And, of course, as usual, it all got quiet. And I knew he was approaching then. So, you know, I, I had to come out in front of me and I'm laying down in the, in the soaking wet leaves in the prone position. And this was just classic Garrett. There was a, a, a log, a dead log laying on the ground. And it was right next to a, a, a pretty large tree that was, you know, just growing vertically. And <clears throat> right in, in between this, the log that was laying on the ground, like the, the stump end of it and the, and the base of the tree, there was about a six inch gap. And that gap is about 15 yards in front of me. And I can, all of a sudden I see through that a big blue head and he's like 25 yards away. And I shot through this six inch gap of which his head took up most of the gap. Right. Uh, and just blasted not a single pellet even had a chance of going into that turkey's uh, breast or any part of its body, just a complete perfect headshot. And of course the GoPro was rolling and caught all of this footage of me crawling up on it. You can see the bird in the background and I can't wait to uh, finish editing that video and get it up. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. I just saw that you posted your, your fried Turkey breast. So when's this other hunt going to be posted then? Probably by the time this podcast uh, launches. Yeah, yeah. I went down. I'm, I'm hoping to get it tonight, but it'll probably be tomorrow by the time I get it. Okay, yeah. Uploaded. Then, then for sure it'll be it'll be uploaded, 
in time. Cool, cool. So, uh, you know, everybody's got turkey meat in their refrigerator right now, and all, I'm getting a lot of requests on these recipe videos. So, um, yeah, I got that the, the fried turkey breast up earlier today, and the Korean soft tacos are uh, are next. And I'm done with it. I tried to upload it earlier, and I got an error or whatever, but I should be able to get that uploaded here probably as soon as we hang out. Oh, nice. I thought you didn't cook unhealthy stuff. What's with the fried turkey? Uh, well, when you fry it in olive oil and coconut oil, it's a heck of a lot better for you than uh, you know some of the other oils out there, like peanut oil or whatever. But wow. you know, at the, at See, the end I, of the I, was, day, I was trying to give you, I was trying to give you some crap there, and then you had a, a legitimate <laughs> response. <laughs> I, I wouldn't say flour and cornstarch are necessarily good for you. But at the end of the day, you know, you have to enjoy life, right? Uh, I eat healthy the majority of the time, and, uh, you know, I'm definitely going to be enjoying some deep-fried wild turkey breast sometime. That's for sure. Cool. Well, man, you had a just a heck of a season. And more so than that, it sounds like you got this system pretty much dialed in. Like, like all you had to do is repeat what you did this year, right? And then – it seems like you've you've stumbled on a system, you know, that you've refined enough that you can just kind of keep going back to that over and over. And probably I would guess the only thing that really hinders that specific style is when you get days where the birds just aren't making any noise whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, that's that can be a challenge. And you know, any time that that just happens, right? Uh, but our reaction to that is you know, is, is going to dictate success or not. So when things slow down in the woods, I, I, I mimic that. I, you know, react to that accordingly. And I found, um, you know, you have to be able to match the environment and I don't know, sometimes it's just a feel, right. Um, you know, I, I love using my e-bike, <clears throat> but there's times for turkey hunting where I just don't find that it is that effective. And I, I don't know that I can, it's, you know, I guess it's just anecdotal, but I've, I've had success riding up onto one of these fingers the same way I do, even if I'm trying to be quiet and all. I don't, I haven't had success in doing that with the e-bike versus on foot. Huh. And I, again, just totally anecdotal. And I don't even really have enough data to understand it myself, but that's just what I've seen. I'd like to keep experimenting with it because the e-bike is certainly efficient. Uh, but if nothing else, you know, it gets you back there um, at a starting point. And, you know, I think that uh, one of the, the very basic and fundamental keys to my success is having a plan, right? So I don't just look at any old ridgetop that I can spend several hours on. I want to get away from other hunters. And I want to get on the outer edge of the public ground because I want to be between private and the birds. So that way I can play the chess match all day long if it need be. Uh, so the e-bike is instrumental in getting back to those certain points that can you know, allow you to start your route in an effective uh, position. Yeah, I, I totally see that for sure. Just getting you in the right ball game, save a ton of time off the front end. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
Yeah. Well, maybe next year we'll be able to to meet up and do some turkey hunting. I mean, it was supposed to happen this year. I was going to go down to Tennessee, and then you know, the whole the whole situation hit, um, and I was going to fly. So that's pretty much the reason why I didn't come. But probably next year that could still, you know, if you guys are doing a similar thing, that could definitely still happen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Tennessee is is great. You, you know, you get for three hundred and thirty bucks or whatever, you get four turkeys in the spring and two bucks in the fall. So that's pretty tough to beat. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, tell the listeners where they can find out more about Ted Bright's adventures. Yeah. So, uh, my YouTube channel is called hunt fit Ted and I typically am showing, uh, you know, obviously a lot of hunting stuff. Um, but I also delve into, you know, just family outdoor stuff, just everyday, um, outdoor activity stuff, adventure and, you know, hunting, fishing, family stuff. Um, and then I've been getting a lot of requests lately for for some uh, cooking shows. So I've been putting out, uh, you know, how to smoke a whole venison leg that'll make your friends envious, and how to deep fry wild turkey breast in a very systematic way that'll be delicious. And I'll be doing a lot more of that. You know, wild game cooking seems to be uh, a void there. And, you know, most of the my hunting and fishing friends, um, you know, are are craving more knowledge on how to how to better process and cook their wild game. So I do enjoy helping to spread the word on that. Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate you taking the time to to jump on and give me some give me some content for the for the podcast. Yeah, yeah, no problem. So just let me know whenever you want to do our uh, wild game cooking podcast because I'm excited about that. That'll be good. Yeah. Yeah, I think it'll be good. That'll do it for this episode. As always, make sure to follow the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Leave us a review on iTunes. And if you're looking for additional content, subscribe to DIY Sportsman. And with that, thanks for listening.